0: everybody ready? Yes. Good morning. How are you, Grace? It's really good to see you. Thanks. It's nice to hear you clapping and the energy. Um, before we get into the message, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we, uh, we bring you praise and honor and glory. We just thank you so much for who you are and what you've done for us. Um, I just pray this morning, Lord God, that you'd give each of us what we need from your word. Um, Take these meager human offerings and do something with them that pleases you. We just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Spiritual warfare. That's the topic. What is it? Too often people might get the image of Regan McNeil in her creepy room, twisting her head around, crawling on the ceiling and projectile vomiting. And trust me, that was the nicest picture I could use. I could get much worse. Spiritual warfare is about the battle the enemy is waging against mankind to keep people who do not know Jesus from knowing him. As well as to hinder you and me from extending the kingdom of God through our intentional acts of Christ-like love and witness. Good morning. My name is Wayne Stapleton. I get to deliver the message this morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, and as we're going through the book of Revelation, today we're in Revelation 12. This chapter is another transition in the book. As we've seen over the course of the past several weeks, there's these different pictures and transitions. Here's another one. And this one introduces us to the role the devil plays in the judgment and the last days. There's an actual real entity named Satan. And I find it interesting that in this account of the end times, how little a role he really seems to play in all of everything. He's mentioned in four of the seven letters. He's mentioned a couple times here in Revelation 12. He's also mentioned in Revelation 20. But it's very clear that this is not a battle of equals between Satan and God. God has got this under control. Now, Satan... Who is he? Satan is a creation of God. He's a powerful angel who went astray. Just another player, again, in something over which God is completely in control. Now, uh, this chapter, chapter 12, introduces him and sets up chapter 13, which describes the way Satan wreaks havoc on the earth using the two beasts. But today, I want to look at the enemy and his intentions and the way that he makes war with you and me. This chapter gives us one way of explaining the background of the spiritual war that we find ourselves in. It's a different level of looking at the battle than what we see in other parts of the Bible. But again, Revelation is a, a, a book that's made up of signs, made up of symbols of the very real truths that God wants us to know and to live by. God's call for us as the church is to be on mission with him, his ambassadors, his ambassadors. On earth, representing another place. Christians and the church communities we make up are to be pictures of God's kingdom values in operation. We encourage one another to extend the kingdom of God, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like we saw the Pastor Jerome is going to be leading a class through. Just like we saw Mike Lawler in the video that we shared that was shared last week. Loving God and our neighbor. As ourselves, we literally reveal the character of the God we worship, the way we treat one another in community and even the way we treat people who are in opposition to us. But you and I get hindered in this mission. If we're honest with ourselves, we're imperfect and flawed and we're not always on point with how we represent Jesus, whether we're all alone or whether we're out in the community. So I ask you to consider, as we're entering into this text this morning, two questions. What hinders your impact for Christ? And what hinders Christ's impact in you? What hinders your impact for Christ and what hinders Christ's impact in you? And I'm going to come back to these questions later, but let's get into the text here in Revelation 12. It can be organized into basically three movements. We read about the woman and the dragon, and then the defeat of the dragon. In the last section, I I, I have titled myself the battles that we face. If you could turn to page 1034 in the Bibles underneath your seat or on page 42 of the Revelation journal that you've just been filling out with so much great information and diligently working through during this series, um, people laughed in first service when I said that. Y'all need to, you all are too serious. Now, this is an intense section, so it's okay. I get it, guys. So I'm going to read Revelation 1 through, uh, Revelation 1 through 6. So a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and with her, on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. What's happening here? Well, the fact that there's a great sign is mentioned It references the fact that this is a new series of visions. We're told there are two signs in the first three verses. This is symbolism. And what is it symbolizing? Uh, The woman symbolizes the people of God through whom the Messiah came. She could represent Mary. She could represent Eve. Uh, She generally tends to, to be a personification of the community of God's people. The sun, moon, and stars directly reference a vision that Joseph had in Genesis 37. God called the people, the people of Israel, through whom his son would physically be born. And that's what she represents. One commentator, in keeping with this, notes that the Greek word for birth pains that this woman is experiencing as the child is being born typically is used to reference the pains that the church or the people of God have experienced through trials and persecution. So we recognize the fact that as the Old Testament people of God were bringing forth the Messiah who would be born, they experienced trials and persecutions in the process. So that's one sign. But we read there's another one. A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems or crowns. Last week, Pastor Doug reminded us that these are visions. These are symbolic. This dragon, we read in verse 9 later, we find out, is Satan. Satan is not literally a dragon, but a fallen angel. But the dragonosity of Satan, yes, I made that up. The dragonosity of Satan reflects the fact that he's fierce and he's powerful and intent on destroying and devouring. We read in 1 Peter 5, 8, that Satan, the devil, stalks the world like a roaring lion looking for who he can devour. This vision symbolizes Fierce power. I can't speak for you, but I don't really run into many dragons in my daily goings and comings. The people who originally would have read this letter would read into this name dragon, uh, a serpent or a sea monster or a kind of lizard during which that time was usually connected with demonic powers. In Babylon, during this time, uh, a dragon referenced a serpent that guards the Babylonian god. So this is symbolism for a kind of being that's evil. And the red of the dragon symbolizes slaughtering or murder. If you remember back in Revelation 6, 4, there was a red horse. And that red horse took peace from the earth and had people killing each other. The dragon's intentions are exactly the same. Murder. The seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns symbolize tremendous power and political authority. One commentator writes, the seven is the number of completeness, showing us that the dragon has extensive power and many manifestations, which I think is important for us to remember when we think about spiritual warfare. It's not like the dragon is only working in remote parts of the world where we where we, we, we don't see him. He's working all over. Similarly, later in Revelation 13, a beast will come out of the sea with 10 horns and 7 heads with 10 crowns. And this chapter is setting up the leader of the beast as the dragon who's going to be using the beast in chapter 13 to do his bidding. We read that the dragon's tail sweeps down a third of the stars. Now, every time... I'm pretty much every time that I've heard somebody teach on demons and fallen angels and what happened in heaven, I hear Revelation 12, 4 as proof that Satan took a third of the angels with him in rebellion against God. I don't know that there's exactly exegetical proof that this is what's happening here, but it's possible. But what we do know is that the dragon has a very broad range of influence, and he's literally Mighty. Not mightier than God, of course, but let's be very clear, much more powerful than you or me. This dragon is a force to be reckoned with, and he has a clear intention in this vision. Like we said, he wants to murder, but he has a specific victim that he wants to kill. We read that the dragon stood, and it's not uncommon for lizard-like animals. To stand up when in an attacking position. He's in an attacking position waiting for the woman to give birth to the child. Who's the child? The child is Jesus. You're preaching with me now. We know that he's Jesus because he's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and nobody else fits the bill but Jesus. And we also know this because that's a direct quote from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is known as a messianic psalm, one of the psalms that point to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we read in Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. That's capital S. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's interesting that, you know. Pastor Doug, he had the whiteboard up here, and he talked about the fact that this is a cyclical book. Let's keep that in mind. This isn't a linear book. We talked about the kingdom coming earlier in the book, and now we're going back to when the person who's bringing in the kingdom is being born. That's because Revelation is a series of visions building on one another to communicate a specific thing. The dragon's intention to kill this child refers to the many attempts on Jesus Life, Notably, in Matthew 2.16, we read that King Herod ordered all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under to be murdered based on the time that the wise men told him the child would be born. Now, we avoid that during Christmas. We try to keep it lighter. But that actually took place during the, the, the appearance of of the Messiah. The Jewish leaders throughout Jesus' ministry, earthly ministry, attempted to kill him. But we know that the dragon failed. He, he didn't succeed. Now we know Jesus died on the cross, but the dragon wanted to keep him from dying, he's atoning death for our sins. And there's different ways that Satan tried to do this. Remember, Satan was the one who when Jesus was in the wilderness told the the, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, worship me. He was trying to keep him from doing the work that he did on our behalf. We recognize that the child, that the dragon failed because the child was caught up to God and his throne, which refers to Christ's ascension after his resurrection that we read about in Acts 1. God's purposes were not thwarted by the dragon, and the dragon did not like that. It's interesting that we get this picture of the ministry of Jesus Christ in a few words. We don't hear any reference to the work that he did on the cross or the miracles that he did. And this is a symbolic description because God is trying to communicate something different here. He's trying to communicate something about the dragon and the dragon's intentions. So the woman representing the people of God, flees to the wilderness. And biblically, the wilderness represents a place of dependence on God and the protection of God. The dragon couldn't kill the child, but that did not stop the dragon from fighting because the dragon is a rebel. He's combative. He has to fight. He can't get to the child. So a war in heaven starts. We read in verse 7, Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power And the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they have not loved their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows his time is short. In verse 7, we're reading about this battle. And I I see the battle, uh, the victory of Michael and his angels directly related to the victory of Jesus on the cross. It's the only way for the proclamation that that starts in verse 10 to make any sense. Christ's victory on the cross, his securing of our salvation, is represented... And symbolized by Michael and the archangels defeating the dragon and him being cast down to earth. Michael, whose name literally means who is like God, is an archangel. Regarded as the heavenly patron of Israel and then by extension all the people of God. He's a spiritual being who fights on behalf of God's people. He's referenced in the book of Jude. He's referenced in the book of Daniel. The dragon is referred to as the deceiver of the whole world because that's his weapon fooling people. Jesus said this about Satan, which gives you an indication, is Satan real or symbolic? Well, Jesus talked about him as a real person, so I'm going to take Jesus' word for it. Jesus said in John 8:44, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. His angels were thrown out with him, and the dragon's defeat causes great rejoicing in heaven, which makes sense. Who wouldn't be happy that Satan moves out of your neighborhood? No one wants him around. As one commentator knows, the triumph is symbolic of the war that was won by the atoning death of Christ, a victory in which we participate by our unflinching witness to Christ and his kingdom. And and this flows with a loud voice, the proclamation we hear announcing that the salvation and power and kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come. The only way that could have happened is because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But notice that Satan's called the accuser. He's the the accuser of the brethren. Every time I read this and I think about it, I'm like, We should be really careful whose work we're doing when we are accusing the brethren. He knows he can't condemn, but he knows God can. So his only recourse is to tempt us, to lead astray, and to point at us to God, the righteous judge, and say, look at them. But his accusations aren't only just to God. His accusations are also to you and me, aren't they? Have you ever had that sense of condemnation? People talk about the difference between condemnation and conviction. Romans 8.1 tells us there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that could be the enemy's voice. His accusations infect our relationships with each other, in our families, in our marriages, with friends and even strangers. And despite the fact that Satan accuses, we can conquer. We're we saying today, we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. The reality is we have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. The victory is secure for us. But it's not by our wits. It's not by our might. It's not by our wisdom. It's not even by our Bible knowledge or our prideful posturing. But it's because of the finished work of Jesus Christ himself. By his blood, which means his atoning sacrifice for our sins. And by our testimony for what he has done for us and what he's doing in us. Greg Beale writes that through Christ's death, we've been declared not guilty of the accusations launched against us. Think about that the next time you feel condemnation. That's not coming from Jesus. Jesus is drawing you to him, not away from him. And in this case, believers persevere in their trust in Christ, even in the face of persecution and even death, because we read, they loved not their lives unto death. That's convicting. If it's not convicting, it should be convicting. I'll give you a moment. If we want to say we're biblical... No matter where we live in the world, we have to be prepared for the reality that an aspect of the witness of people who follow Jesus Christ could, in fact, be martyrdom. That testifying to who Jesus Christ is and what he's done in our lives could be fatal. And that doesn't mean it's a loss on your behalf. Because from the throne room in heaven, wins and losses look a little different than they do from earth sometimes just like there's rejoicing there's also woe woe to the world because the devil's on the loose and he's going to cause a big stink hatred violence murder and destruction he comes to steal and kill and destroy and we know that don't we we just experienced it this week in Nashville it seems like we experience it a few times every week these days with those kinds of things subtle and major Though the dragon's been defeated, however, he still battles from a position of having been beaten somehow. Revelation 12:13 reads that when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd been, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, a times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This passage is, to me, a very clear reason why we could get caught up in trying to figure out where's this mouth of water coming from and where's this wilderness place and what is time, times, and half a time mean. And I don't think that's the point of it. I think the bigger picture point is that the woman representing the people of God is chased by the dragon, but God is protecting her, and she's being nourished for a period of time. The dragon wants to sweep her away, but the earth protects her somehow. Then the dragon goes off, and he makes war. So he lost his war in heaven, and now he's on the earth. And who is he making war with? On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who's that? That's us. That's us. That's you and me. The dragon's uh, you and me. The, the dragon can't get to the son of God because you know the son of God was caught up to heaven. The, the dragon, uh, he lost the war in heaven. The dragon's accusations against the church fall flat because the church conquers by the blood of Christ and the word of our testimony and faith in Jesus. But therefore, because Satan can't get after our souls, Greg Beale writes, he goes after our bodies. And I would say our minds as well as our mission. We read in Ephesians 6.12 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we're reminded after that to take up the full armor of God for protection. The fact that there is a spiritual war against us and it's being waged by an ancient, powerful, evil, demonic foe like the dragon should not scare us. We should respect the intensity and the gravity of the fight, but it shouldn't scare us because he fights from a position of loss. Jesus is the victor. He is victorious and we read in Colossians 3 that for all who trust in Jesus Christ our life is hidden with Christ in God. We're ultimately protected because of Jesus Christ, his atoning death and our testimony in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we trust in Christ, our role in the planet on the planet is to be on mission with him representing him, letting him fill us with his love so we can dispense that love with to others letting him fill us with forgiveness so that we can extend that forgiveness to others letting him fill us up with grace and mercy so we can be purveyors and agents of grace and mercy to the world around us pointing back to the beauty of who Jesus is in the first place Amen. Yeah. so back to my earlier question what hinders your impact for Christ and what hinders Christ's impact in you one answer is the spiritual war that we're in. The, the enemy is a thief. He, he's a murderer. He's a liar. He's the father of lies, and he's a counterfeit. He can't create anything, but what he can do is distort and pervert what God intends to be good. He tried to kill Jesus his way and failed. He fought powerful angels and failed. He's after the church of Jesus Christ. He's after us, those who keep the commandments of God. So what do we do? Well, what do we know? We know that he fights from a position of loss. His time is short and he knows it. It's like he's in a football game and he's down by like 100 touchdowns, but the game still has to go on And he knows that the time on the scoreboard is going to reach zero, 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 zero at some point. He knows that time is coming, but the time hasn't come yet. So what he's going to do until that time comes is break bones, hurt people, and cause havoc all the way to his own judgment because he knows that's coming. He can't do anything else. The enemy's tactics to take us off course include, but aren't limited to, discouragement, distraction, distraction. Division and deception. Now, each of these are connected to one another. I'll, I'll grant you that, but I'd like to isolate them and look at their impact one by one. Let's look at how they might take us off course. The first is discouragement. Bad things happen; that we get discouraged. It's it's human to be discouraged. The issue is not getting discouraged, but when we stay this way, when we when we when we when we like kind of. Gravitate and when we, when we like kind of sink ourselves into this discouragement, we have a tendency to not act in faith and we take our eyes off God and we put them on ourselves and we take our eyes off God's resources and we put them on our own resources and we take our eyes off God's power and we try to say, Can I muster up the power in my own strength? And, And this is one reason why we sing at the beginning of worship services. Uh, We, our worship is a reorienting of our vision. It helps us to be ready to see and hear God at work when His Word is preached. It primes us for what God wants to do and what God wants us, what what we, He wants us to see. It helps us to adjust our eyes upwards so we can see what God is doing and so we can probably be more available for His Word when it's preached to penetrate the places in our heart that need to be penetrated so we can walk away with something we didn't come in with. It's about more than standing up and singing. It's, a, it's to adjust our frame of reference, to look upward at the scoreboard. Like the old hymn says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who makes an end of all my sin. Like I've heard somebody say before, you know, instead of telling God you have big problems, We have to be reminded to tell our problems we have a big God. And that's how we do it. Jesus is our victor. Jesus is our hero. Jesus is our leader. And we overcome discouragement by looking at him. We don't overcome discouragement in our own strength or by our own wits. That's one way the enemy can take us off course is by discouragement. Another one is by distraction. Building the kingdom of God requires intention on our part. Literally, if we're going to represent Jesus in the world around us, we're going to do things that probably in our flesh we don't want to do because our spirit wants us to do it. We have inertia in our flesh. We want to do the easy thing. We want, but, but we have to be intentional about building the kingdom of God. We have to be intentional about serving and, 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 and making Christ known around us. We need clarity about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I cannot imagine a more distracted time in the history of mankind than right now. We have so much information constantly thrown at us. It takes effort to decipher what is valuable. People say there's a lot of knowledge being thrown around, but not necessarily a lot of wisdom. There's facts, but what do you do with the facts? And a lot of times they're not even facts. There's stuff that is disguised like facts, but it's not really facts. The problem is so much stuff is thrown at us that I believe sometimes we just try to figure out what channel do we listen to and ingest everything the channel says without uh, actually investigating whether that channel is for us or against us or for Jesus' purpose or against Jesus' purpose. We tell ourselves that uh, being aware of as much as possible out there is actually equivalent to making an impact in the world, but that's not true. We make space in our brains for information that provides no value at all. And I'm just as guilty. I don't need to know who my favorite actor is dating. I don't need to see a bunch of videos about the slap at the Oscars. You don't think I need to see those videos either, apparently. Tanya might be right about the fact that I know too much about Michigan football and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Come on, you all. Don't be hating on Marvel, though. I'm not saying these things are necessarily inherently wrong. It's just that when we fill our minds and the spaces in our brains with them and not the things that actually help us represent Jesus in the world around us, they take us off course and they distract us. I would never say don't watch that kind of stuff, but I'd say watch yourself. But we're distracted by more than the media boogeyman. We're distracted by our own lusts, our own materialism, our own selfishness, our own capacity. I'm going to say this slowly. Our own capacity to baptize our interests and tell ourselves that God cares about them too. We're distracted by sinful coping mechanisms of all kinds of addictions that can be really, really harsh or really even benign, but they could still be sinful coping mechanisms That we run to those coping mechanisms instead of running to our Savior. And then we're not actualizing, we're not manifesting in those moments the overcoming that Jesus did for us in the first place. How can I think about the impact of the kingdom of God on my neighbors around me when I'm preoccupied with my desires and my wants and my comfort? And the reality of the situation is that we also live in the most individualistic culture in the history of mankind. And so we make everything about ourselves. Making disciples, sharing the gospel, ministering the word of God, serving people in the name of Jesus, real reconciliation, making space for the other, forgiveness, humility, ongoing repentance. Christ calls us to each of these things in each of our individual different contexts. Our distraction can cause us to spend years and years in church, but stay on milk. God wants us to get to the point where we're eating thick, juicy spiritual steak. But we can't get there when we stay engorged on baby food and harmful candy. When I tried to preach that message before when I was at renewal, I was like wanted to get a picture of an adult in diapers, but I thought that was too harsh. So I don't even know why I said that. We can be in church for decades, but never become used by God to strengthen others in the faith. Younger believers need people who've traveled the roads that they're going to tread. Tomorrow's leaders, church leaders, are built today. The church's future can only be built on the church's present. And too often, literally, and this is serious, literally at the office where I, we pray for churches in the NAB we actually literally had a prayer request from a pastor who has all these young families coming to the church and so he's like changing up how he preaches and it's impacting the service because young families are coming to church and he wanted us to pray because the older people in the church are complaining that things are changing literally a revival is taking place and people don't like what's happening because they've been in church for 50 years When we're distracted from the things of God, and sometimes we can allow religion to distract us from the things of God, really, and how to apply them to our circumstances, we remain unprepared, and the church does too. Besides distraction in this culture that we've been born in, Satan knows he can get us off course through division. The church lacks the power it could have because it insists on cutting itself up into smaller and smaller pieces. The body of Christ is more than just your local church, but what we do to it shouldn't be done. The church is broken up over ethnicity, over theology, over cultural preferences, over political preferences. Uh, At at the NAB, we're bringing a speaker to come and speak, and we've made an announcement about it, and we literally got um, an email from a pastor at one of our churches who attributed a bunch of different quotes that he thought were condemning of this particular speaker. And we were looking for, like, some attribution to some of the quotes, and nobody can find them anywhere. They're trying to figure out, why is this guy coming against this dude with these quotes that nobody knows where they're from? Sometimes it seems like division is stoked, like, for a sport. Like, people enjoy creating division. This division is often the results of the accusations of the accuser of the brethren. Now there are Orthodox Christians who have differences and those differences should be talked about in the context of mutual love and in the context of the unity of who we are in Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done for us. But too often the differences are made to be bigger than our unity in Christ because Satan has a tendency to convince us that dividing is better than uniting. There's a problem with unity though. True biblical unity costs everyone something. I'd make the case everybody pays a price for true biblical unity. And some people just don't want to pay. You might have to sing a song in a style you don't like. You might have to spend time with people whose political opinions are not consistent with yours. You might have to engage in relationships with people that you're not historically comfortable with. Are you willing to pay the price for unity? to foot the expense for the comfort of others in your midst. When we read the faithful love their lives not unto death, not their lives unto death, what we should read is their preferences were not more important than their Lord. Their wants were not more important than their Lord. Their consumerism was not more important than their Lord. Unity that glorifies Christ is expensive, and it can be expensive. But I guarantee you, and you probably know this at some level, it's bound to be expensive, and increasingly expensive in a church that describes itself as a mosaic. But the, if the great commandment is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, it's a price we have to pay to represent Jesus Christ faithfully to the world around us. Finally, the enemy's key tactic is deception. Now all of Satan's schemes, all the things he's doing to take us off course, to hinder us, are rooted in deception. We can't grow a faithful church if we're subject to false teaching. False teaching can come in a variety of forms, but includes distortions about the identity of Jesus as the son of God. Deceptions that... God isn't a trinity and even sinful compromise of what God has clearly said we should, the ways God clearly said we should live. In my experience, Satan is so clever that he hinders the kingdom both with false teachers and with people who spend all their time looking for false teachers. I've seen people get so worked up from something they heard on a YouTube video that they, it convinced them that it, the, about falseness that they come back to church and try to break up the church over it. That does not mean we should not confront false teaching. We have to confront false teaching. We must confront false teaching. We need to be clear on what historically orthodox false teaching is. Too often people will say, well, false teaching is what Christians disagree with me. And... That's not necessarily false teaching, necessarily. We need wisdom. We need discernment. But we also have to remember, because we're in the book of Revelation, that the church at at Ephesus was seeking out false teachers. And they were looking for people who claimed to be apostles. And they tested them. And they saw that they weren't. And yet still Jesus said they had to repent from something. What they had to repent from was they lost their first love. You can be looking for false teachers all day and night and still have to repent if you're not doing it with the love of Jesus Christ. Too often we don't have the discernment to recognize the subtle ways the enemy is attacking us. Not in some hyper-spiritual way, but by the enemy appealing to our flesh, to our pride, to our self-centeredness, and to our lusts. And and, and I I have a tendency to often think that one of the best gauges for that is just asking ourselves, are the things we're devoting ourselves to producing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Those are the fruit of the Spirit. Those are evidence that the Holy Spirit is dynamic and at work in a powerful way in our midst. And if we're devoting ourselves to things that aren't generating the fruit of the Spirit, then we need to investigate what's going on. We need to interrogate what's going on. A discouraged church is a victory for Satan. A distracted church is a victory for Satan. A divided church is a victory for Satan. And a deceived church is a victory of Satan. He lost the war. That's a done deal. But he can win a battle here and there. How do we confront him? Just give me two more hours. (laughs) Our, Our weapons are found in Ephesians 6. Now the weapons are found throughout the Bible. I get that. Ephesians 6 pointedly talks about this particular area. It talks about the armor of God that's ultimately about depending on the work of Christ for us, what he's done for us, as well as the work of Christ in us, what he's done in us and what he wants to do through us. It talks about the significance of standing in the truth of God's word. Living lives of righteousness. Experiencing the peace that comes from Christ. The peace we have with God. Relying on our faith. And sometimes when we are feeling weak, the faith of our friends. The knowledge of our salvation. And the application of the word of God. Covering it all in prayer. Regarding prayer, Tony Evans wrote, simply defined, prayer is earthly permission for heavenly interference. So we are to pray, we are to stand, we are to be devoted, we are to fight discouragement, we are to fight distraction, we are to fight deception, and we are to fight division in all the ways Christians have been doing this for 2,000 years. Being focused and intentional about reading and meditating on the word of God and then getting up and doing it. Worshiping God, being in Christian community, confessing our sins to one another, remembering that we are more than conquerors, not because of what we have done, but because what Jesus has done for us by his atoning death, his resurrection, his ascension and his glorification. And because of what he's done in us and he wasn't what he wants to continue to do in us and not just in us individually, in us in community. And us as a family of the people of God. What is your testimony? What has Jesus done in you? This passage reminds us that there's a world we cannot see. That we have an ominous adversary. But we also have a greater warrior on our side. The risen Lord Jesus Christ. And our job is to stand because Jesus is the true victor. In Revelation, next week we'll see in Revelation how the enemy uses political power to wage is war, but let us never forget that Jesus Christ is greater, and the enemy fights from a position of defeat. When you've trusted in Christ, you are already a conqueror. Let us live like it. Would you pray with me, Heavenly Father? We just thank you and praise you, and I, it's just my prayer that um, that whatever you want to do through Revelation twelve doesn't stop. At the end of this message, but it continues and that there are ways that anyone who's listening to his message will receive from the Holy Spirit how you want to apply it to our own lives and to our own hearts, to our own stories, Heavenly Father. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you do a work in not just us individually, but in us as a community, as people who witness to the greatness of who you are by our engagement in our life along with one another. Pray, Lord God, that we'd be—you'd be pleased in us, and that we would join you on mission, so that others would come to know your salvation and your power. In Jesus' name, Amen.
1: Let's thank Wayne. So I want to give you just a little bit of insight into what's going to happen over the next week. Next week is Holy Week. Uh, Easter is next Sunday. Uh, A few things going on here that are invitations for you. Meg and I will be in the chapel every morning from 6.30 to 7.30. The chapel is just on the other side of this wall. Uh, We'll also be online through Facebook, so you can join us there. Uh, We end the last 10 minutes with a devotional, and then we take communion together. Just a great way to just quiet your spirit. So maybe this week you want to join us in there, maybe on your way to work. Some people come for the whole hour. Some people just come for 10 minutes here. Some people just come for the end, whatever works for you, or Just come online with us and uh, take communion with us. That would be great. Uh, Friday, we have a Good Friday service that will be at 630, and we are going to uh, explore the words of Jesus from the cross. Love for you to participate in that with us. We're also going to have the chapel open from noon to 3. That will just be a self-guided opportunity for you just to come and uh, spend some time with Jesus there as well. Uh, But I also wanted to talk to you about Easter Sunday. So if you've been at Grace, if you were here last week and you're here this week, then you are a regular attender. Um, <laughs> but here's, here's my request. Uh, if you came late today, you probably had trouble finding a parking spot. Uh, we are limited in our parking here at Grace. Uh, so I am asking you uh, to come a little bit early and to park off the campus as much as possible. Uh, Park in a reasonable place. All of the street parking is open. We have uh, parking at Family Foods. They're very generous to allow us to use their parking lot. You can park in my driveway. Uh, I live here on the campus. I don't care. Uh, But let's save the parking spots for our guests. Uh, The room will be pretty full and we just want to make sure that people don't come and when they can't find a parking spot, they go on their way. We want to make sure that we can accommodate them. Uh, So if you could do that for me, that would be great. Uh, I want to remind you that that you can sign up today for uh, the workshop on sharing your faith. The last two weeks have been just a real uh, uh, stirring in us that we need to be more intentional about bringing our friends and families to Jesus. So uh, Jerome's workshop is going to be great. You can just go right up the steps on the right and let them know that you're coming, get your book and be ready for that right after Easter. God bless you. Come back next Sunday. It's going to be a busy day, but we look forward to seeing you next Easter. Have a great week.